Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website and give them a call. It's johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. Dot com. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. He's in Tel Aviv right now. We'll be talking about current global events, including an update on what's happening with COVID-19 around the world. We'll visit with Larry Reed. He's the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We talk about a British parliamentarian who jumped ship from socialism, actually changed his ways while in office. And we'll visit with Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief living right there in Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, author of a couple of great murder mysteries. The latest is Shake the Money Tree. It is July the 20th, and on this day in 1969, none of us will forgive it, forget it. At 10.56 p.m., American astronaut Neil Armstrong, 240,000 miles from Earth, spoke the words to more than a billion people listening at home, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, stepping off the lunar landing module Eagle, Armstrong became the first human to walk on the surface of the moon. The American effort to send astronauts to the moon had been its origins in a famous F. Kennedy, the President of the United States, made in a special joint session of Congress on May the 25th, 1961. He said, I believe the nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. At the time, the United States was still trailing the Soviet Union. Remember Spud Dicks and all those things. And space developments in Cold War era America welcomed Kennedy's bold proposal. In 1966, after five years of work by an international team of scientists and engineers, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, conducted the first unmanned Apollo mission, testing the structural integrity of the proposed launch vehicle and spacecraft combination. Then, on January 27, 67, tragedy struck at Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, where a fire broke out during a manned space launch pad test of the Apollo spacecraft and Saturn rocket, three astronauts were killed in the fire. Despite the setback, NASA and its thousands of employees forged ahead. In October 1968, Apollo 7, the first manned Apollo mission, orbited the Earth, successfully testing many of the sophisticated systems needed to conduct a moon journey and landing. In December of the same year, Apollo 8 took three astronauts to the far side of the moon and back, and in March 1969, Apollo 9 tested the lunar module for the first time while in Earth's orbit. Then in May, the three astronauts of Apollo 10 took the first complete Apollo spacecraft around the moon in a dry run for the scheduled July landing mission. An unbelievable thing, and just the whole story, just minute by minute, was so exciting for all of us, as I recall. And, of course... uh, about those over what 400,000 people that participated in this whole thing. Buzz Aldrin joined uh, Neil Armstrong on the moon's surface at 11 and 11 p.m. and together they took photographs of the terrain and of course planted the planted the flag. Got a phone call with uh, President Richard Nixon. There would be about five more successful lunar landing missions and one unplanned lunar swing by Apollo 13. The last men to walk on the moon were Eugene Cernan and Harrison Smith of the Apollo 17 mission. More than 400,000 engineers, technicians, and scientists costing over $24 billion. That's close to $100 billion in today's dollars. The expense was justified by Kennedy's 1961 mandate to beat the Soviets uh, to the moon. Great story and a great moment of pride for Americans and for American culture, which we see attacked right now in so many ways. Well, a little uh, update on COVID-19 panic and uh, media-induced to panic, uh, in my opinion. Uh, 239 cases of COVID-19 and two deaths in Cuyahoga County yesterday. Cuyahoga now has 7,815 confirmed cases out of 46,131 tests. 
uh, of COVID-19. Deaths are now total at 107 out of a population of about 360,000 folks. 512 people in Collier County have been hospitalized at one point, uh, but uh, we don't know how many people are in the hospital right now. It's, but uh, overall capacity has remained stagnant uh, statewide. Nearly 25% of regular hospital beds and 19% in intensive care units were empty on Sunday, the health care agency said. Governor DeSantis, who on Saturday urged state residents to remain calm among the alarming jump in cases, has focused on uh, the percent of people testing positive. The percentages have grown slowly dropped, he said, which is a good sign. That's the, uh, the number of people who've died. Uh, Candace Owens um, uh, tweeted, no, this is a Facebook post. She says, this is a major story. The Florida Department of Health has been caught red-handed, increasing the COVID-19 case number by a whopping 90% on their website, which resulted in increased state lockdown measures. Governor DeSantis must demand the prosecution of all involved. She uh, set that out on Facebook. I think she's right. Nationally, 57,562 people were hospitalized on Sunday, according to the coronavirus tracking report. Uh, nationwide, more than 3.7 million people have been tested positive since the pandemic began, and roughly 140,000 people have died. All, all these numbers, of course, questionable uh, for various reasons. Uh, one month after, you know, people are saying we should all wear masks. Well, one month after Governor uh, Gavin Newsom from California unilaterally ordered state residents to wear masks in most public settings. The average daily number of coronavirus cases in the state has increased by over 160%. Now, that's after he demanded that masks be worn. He said on June 17th, or 18th in the order, mandated the face coverings be worn statewide while in any indoor space, public space, while on public transit, during virtually every form of work in which the public might be involved in some way, while walking through hallways, stairways, elevators, and parking facilities, while in any room or enclosed area where other people, except for members of the person's own household or residence, are present, uh, when unable to physically distance, and in outdoor settings where six feet of distance between individuals is not possible. Okay, that was the mandate. Every state resident older than two years of age is bound by the mandate, he said. Can you believe that? Well, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, website, uh, University, which offers pandemic tracking tools for every U.S. state, says the average daily cases in California have increased from 3,385 when this all started on June the 18th to 8,889 as of July the 16th, an increase of 162%. Now, in addition to that, this is how, how these things work out. Now, again, we're just talking about the... Uh, the uh, measures that are being taken by governors, a K Kentucky couple said they were placed on house arrest and fitted with ankle monitors after one of them tested positive for COVID-19 but then refused to sign the county self-isolation order. This is Elizabeth Linscott who told reporters that she decided to get t tested as a precaution before visiting her grandparents. After receiving a positive test result, the county he health department contacted her requesting she sign a self-isolation order, agreeing she must uh, receive uh, must uh, receive approval before leaving her residence for any reason, which she refused to sign. A few days later, after Linscott refused to sign the order, the couple unexpectedly received a visit from the sheriff's office, and they put ankle bracelets on them. Now, she has a young child, and she was concerned about having the freedom to go to the hospital being tied down by uh, the uh, all the bureaucracy of having to deal with that ankle bracelets. This is how these some of these draconian measures can be uh, after the decision is made that people have to wear masks or whatever it might be. Uh, this is this is way at an overreach by a government overreach that's just unacceptable. Now, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported the 12th straight week of declining coronavirus death rate in the United States. Based on death certificate data, the percentage of deaths attributed to pneumonia, influenza, or COVID-19 decreased from 8.1% during the week 27 to 6.4% during week 28, representing the 12th week of a declining percentage of deaths due to PIC. 
That according to the uh, CDC website. The CDC says the numbers will likely change as more death certificates are processed, particularly for recent weeks, but a 12-week decline is a well-established trend that just so happens to coincide with the states reopening their economies. It's all good news, don't you think? I think we should celebrate that, but uh, you know, I'm a suspicious sort. I could just quote from H.L. Mencken, one of my heroes. He wrote uh, The Generation of Vipers. He was a great journalist and columnist and writer back in the 30s and 40s, and 50s, I think, even. I'm suspicious of all things that the average person believes. I think that pretty much at my old age begins to summarize uh, my feelings about this whole thing as well. Well, presumptive Democrat Joe Biden put Republicans on notice this week. If you use the filibuster to stymie his agenda, you'll lose it. It's going to depend on how obstreperous they become. Biden said of eliminating the 60-vote threshold to end debate, the former vice president previously resisted uh, getting rid of the filibuster, but now says you're going to have to take a good look at it, he says, if he wins uh, and captures the Senate that would enable them to pass legislation with a simple majority, leaving Republicans powerless to stop them. We'll talk more about this later in the program. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also, Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, a terrific multimedia website for those that uh, want to embrace and love history. You should introduce the young people in your home to uh, HistoryCentral.com. He's also the author of several books. We're going to be talking about current world affairs, that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabee's.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Gulf Shore Playhouse, devoted to creating professional New York-style theater at its very best and at affordable prices, presents a fabulous new season of productions beginning in November with a world premiere of a one-man show written by and starring the talented associate artistic director of Gulf Shore Playhouse, Jeffrey Bender. Pinup Girls opens in January, singing a cavalcade of hits inspired by real letters from our troops overseas. Inspired by what they find funny, romantic, heartbreaking, and sexy, the ladies put on a show that celebrate the guys and gals who fight to defend our country. Bang Bang opens in March, written by legendary actor of Monty Python fame, John Cleese. You'll surely be wiping away tears of laughter with this one. William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream opens in March. Meddling parents, impetuous young lovers, and cunning fairies collide in Shakespeare's enchanting classic. Another Revolution by Jacqueline Bircher opens in May. You won't want to miss this timely new work about finding hope in one another through the uncertainty of the world around us. What a terrific season of productions. Tickets for this great new season are available now. Tickets start at only $38. Tickets can be purchased by calling the box office at 866-811-4111 or visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and great summer programs for kids. Uh, you can find out more by visiting the website gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman, as we do every Monday morning. Mark is the founder and president of and, and uh, publisher of HistoryCentral.com, as we mentioned before the break. Written several books, mainly on past presidents. Mark, again, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mark. Thank you, Mark. So, talking about current world events, there's lots of developments in China. Maybe you can tell us about it. Absolutely, Bob. And one of the things I mean, that's going on has been a video that's spread throughout the world showing Uyghurs being taken, shackled, being put on a train to some sort of re-education, concentration camps, etc., something that certainly, well, I won't say it's a holocaust because they don't seem to be killing these people, uh, but it, it certainly depicts those images and brings up the question of, you know, what is the world going to do? You know, we didn't, we didn't have images of uh, Jews put on trains being sent to concentration camps in 1942, but now we have satellites and people with cell phones and everything else, and we do. And yet the world is very much afraid of China and doesn't know how to react to it. Yeah. Um, so also, it's very I, heard, complicated. I heard a story that the, the Chinese were harvesting human body parts. I mean, you know, if you connect the dots on what's going on, it just makes you wonder. Of course, with a little regard for individual liberty in China, you, may, it, you just wonder. That's an, old, that's an old story that I don't think is untrue. I mean, I'm not saying it's not true, but it's been, long, it's been known about for many years of, of convicts being forced to give up a kidney or other sort, or other uh, semi-replaceable organs um, and then being sold. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, when you, when you don't value human life and you don't have individual rights and freedoms, then these things uh, tend to happen. Uh, you know, we made a bet on China going back to Nixon um, that basically said that if we work with them and they... Um, and they can modernize and move into the um, you know into the industrial world and part of part of the world. They would also modernize and change their political system. Yeah, and we sort of saw it worked in Russia. Although obviously Putin has put some questions on that now, but in order to liberalize and the Russians just gave up communism completely. The Chinese never gave up communism as a means of of ruling. They give it up as an economic system. In other words, the economic system in China has nothing to do with communism. It's totally capitalistic. However, the Communist Party is the ruling party and doesn't allow any dissent whatsoever and makes decisions and powers that almost no other government in the world has. Yeah, I mean, the so, Chinese Communist Party, uh, is, uh, it's pretty clear that their, their uh, intent is world domination economically and otherwise. Uh, you know, the, it, in fact, uh, Attorney General Barr... Uh, delivered a message at the, I think it was at the Nixon Library, uh, but irrespective of where it happened, it was about a 45-minute message. It was pretty clear that China is uh, intent in so many different ways. And he mentioned Hollywood. He mentioned a, a number of sources of compliance that people have obeyed and, and, and kind of kowtowed to the Chinese, communist Chinese. As uh, Sorry, The problem with China is because they represent such a huge market, yeah. Every company is afraid to do things um, that will discourage the distribution of their products in China. So Hollywood is one example where they've self-censored certain things. People on the web, you know, people, uh, that's always a question. They, self, they censor apps that aren't allowed on the Chinese app store. Right. And um, other things, and, you know, Apple goes along with that because, and so does Google, because it's too big a market. Yeah. And so, you know, we run into this strange problem that our own capitalism is our own undoing in many ways. So many companies want to go, you know, agree to joint ventures in China, but they end up giving up too much of their IP, their intellectual property, right. in order to go ahead with that joint venture. Right. But without that joint venture, they didn't have access to the Chinese market, which represents maybe a quarter of the world's market these days, and that's a big chunk for any any significant company. Right. And then so, our, our dependence, uh, for example, on you know, for pharmaceuticals, for rare earth minerals, or whatever it might be, that uh, apparently, uh, you know, we have a real dependence on China, and I think right now our intent is to bring 
businesses back to the United States as well as some of these some of this dependence on things that are so important to us in our economy. Right. So there is one of our biggest problems, theoretical problems, let's put it this way. Uh, Mark, you're a little you're a little muffled. I don't know why, but I don't. Yeah. You, you, you and I both theoretically believe in capitalism, right? Right. Okay, we don't believe in government um, too much government interference in the capitalist world, right? Right. Okay. However, to accomplish those things, it requires the intervention of the government in the free markets. And in order to bring back manufacturing as critical items, it means either subsidizing or not allowing importation of certain items from China. It, re it requires significant government intervention in order to accomplish what we just what we just described, and we both agree it's in our national interests. So how do we balance those two? I don't, yeah. have any, I don't have an easy answer, but I'm putting that question up. No, it's a you great. Know, you're, more, you're even more of a libertarian than I am. Yeah. And so, how do you balance that? Do you want the government involved in making those decisions? You want civil servants, uh, you know, to decide what get made, what gets made in China, what gets made in the United States? How, how are those decisions made? No, so so uh, I think one of the things that happens, of course, is just bringing it to the attention of uh, leaders of American industry and pointing out what's happening over the long term here. That in itself creates some incentive. I agree, it's not going to totally change the uh, the scene, but right now, what the Chinese are doing, the Chinese communists are doing, are create some incentive for uh, business leaders to wake uh, up. You're, you're talking about jawboning to some extent. That really doesn't work. It's in the economic interest of the company to sell in China, and they're willing to pay the price of doing that because the up is greater than the down, and they'll do so unless the government tells them they can't do so. Yeah. And so it, it's a very difficult problem. I mean, you know, um, I don't have easy solutions. I'm one for greater government intervention, but up to a point because I also believe in, in, in you know, the famous economic theory of the, um, the fact that every country can have their specialty and do better than others. Yeah. It's a private advantage of different nations, and we all get richer as a result. So you have to balance the two. Yeah, so I, we, I would say that... Hand, we're, much more depend, we're much more dependent on China than we ever were. On the other hand, our consumers for the last 20 years have seen no rise in price of most of the basic things we buy. Yeah. Uh, so the fact is life is better because of it. At, uh, in, in so many ways, you're absolutely right. I guess and I, it just underscores the importance. So I'm, I'm not for no government. I'm for smaller government, less government. So, yes, we absolutely need... Right, more government, though. So there, there lies the problem, right? The, when, when the theoretical ideology meets the real world, it's always a difficult problem sometimes. Yeah. Well, Mark, there's so many other things to talk about. I want to talk to you about what's happening around the world, including the COVID-19 around the globe. Can you stick around? Absolutely. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show. Uh, oops, I've got to change my commercial message. Uh, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC 
ACC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mark. Thank you, Mark. So uh, uh, there's uh, some aberration in the weather uh, situation in Siberia, and it's a real concern. Maybe you could tell us about it. Right, absolutely. For the last two or three weeks, the average temperature in Siberia has been uh, over 100 degrees. And we're talking about an area that never gets above 40, 45 degrees. The result has been fires that have broken out. Uh, the permafrost has begun to, has begun to melt. And so there's a real concern of the long-term damage. Of course, the permafrost, when it melts, it, it allows more gases into the air. We don't really know what the long-term effect of this is going to be, and it's never happened before. So no one can quite explain it. It's also affected parts of Alaska, not as, not as consistently as it has in Siberia, uh-huh. but it has affected Alaska as well. So, again, it's like it, it fell below the, below the radar because of COVID-19. We have so much we're dealing with that that's something else that, that it's happening. Yeah, so, I mean, in Siberia is uh, thinly populated, uh, but uh, so uh, the concerns would be, in your mind, aside from the fact that it's destroying property and so forth, uh, what's, how does that relate necessarily to what's happening around the world? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a, que- it's a question of, uh, you know, why. And it, you know, regardless of what the causes may be, it's clearly of, of and a manifestation of some sort of global warming. I mean, mm-hmm. to have parts of the world that is usually this cold, this warm, yeah. uh, is very problem because, you know, a serious question. And then, of course, you have the other question of uh, gases escaping, and because permafrost, when it melts, it has trapped many gases underneath the, the permafrost. Yeah. And we don't know what the effect of that's going to be. So it's just a very worrying situation. It doesn't. It's not endangering human life to a large degree other than you know, a few people at the moment. But again, it's... It's like strange and worrying. And yeah, we, we sort of lose track of some of these things. Yeah. So what's good? So it raises the question about what's happening uh, global in terms of the global temperatures and global uh, climate and atmosphere. So, so let's move. Let's move to Iran. So I'm just a very uh, going to call it. Uh, it's uh, strange that all these uh, various nuclear sites are, are exploding and and. Uh, well, that, okay. So we've had a nuclear site explode, which. Theoretically, according to most sources, has been created significant damage to the sense that it put back their program by at least a year. Um, we've had power plants explode. We've had a, some sort of chemical facility explode. Basically, a day doesn't go by without some sort of significant explosion taking place in Iran. Now, who's causing it? Nobody knows. People, of course, say that the explosion in the nuclear facility was either the United States or Israel are both together, but there's no proof of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the other places that are taking place in Iran, no one really knows. You know, maybe it's the opposition, maybe it's, maybe it is the Americans, the Israelis, somebody else. But it's creating a certain level of chaos. Now, keep this, keep in mind that at the same time, the Iranians are reporting 25 million people with COVID-19. And we don't know if the death toll is, but 25 million with COVID-19 is a, is a big number for a population of under 100 million. Yeah. So um, they're in really deep trouble at the moment in terms of uh, between dealing with COVID-19 and explosions taking place everywhere. And then on top of which, theoretically, it looks like they hijacked a, uh, a tanker from the UAE. It was found abandoned inside of, uh, off the coast of Iran, so that's another another question so yeah a lot going on and because of covid we're all 
you know, we're all thinking about COVID all the time, which makes sense because it affects us all directly. But um, the world is not sitting still at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, rumors circulating that the AI toll is uh, power is in question right now, and uh, whether that, whether there could be some sort of a revolt. Any thoughts? I don't know. You know, we've been talking about this for a few years. Obviously, with the COVID situation as bad as it is, or the economic situation as bad as it is, that, you know, you could see a scenario where they'd finally lose power. Mm-hmm. But, on the other hand, um, it's hard to know. You know, they're, they're fanatics. They're willing to kill their own people. And as we saw in Syria, if you're willing to kill, kill enough of your own people, you can stay in power for an awfully long time. Yeah. And also people are more, more reluctant to revolt if they think the only result is going to be their own death. So interesting. So let's move to uh, COVID-19 and what's happening around the world. First of all, let's start off with Tel Aviv. How's everything there? Uh, pretty bad. Um, you know, like I said, we were down to 10 to 20 cases a day, and then we opened everything up, particularly the schools. The schools ended up being a disaster. The health ministry immediately called uh, to close the schools as soon as the, um, the first major outbreak took place. But the government was so convinced that it was behind them that they didn't close the schools. And as a result, Israel went from 10 to 15 cases a day to somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 cases a day. That's with a population of 8 million, to put it into perspective. Yeah. Uh, so it went from being almost totally under control to totally not under control. Most of it seems to be the schools were the biggest culprit for it. So a word of warning for all those people pushing to open schools, uh, whether... Kids get sick or not, which is one of those big arguments that are still taking place. They are super spreaders. Well, so spreaders. Did, just a moment on the kids. I mean, did they were their kids getting very sick and having to go to the hospital? No, there were not. A lot, there were a lot of high school kids who had COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. They themselves did not get very sick, but they spread it to their families. Yeah, and they got sick. And, and, and therein lies. When I've read at this point, kids from ten years old and up can spread the disease as much and as effectively as adults can. Mm-hmm. Kids under 10 spread it less effectively, but let's keep in mind the fact that kids in school interact physically yeah. with more other people than us adults do any t- you know, at any given time. Right. Well, that's a, so it's a kind of a petri... It's a very, very dangerous place. Yeah, it's a kind of a petri dish of, uh, you know, so that we can take a look at a canary in the coal mine to, to for that informs how we're going about uh, opening schools here in the United States, so that's very, very helpful information, I would think. Uh, so, no, absolutely. People need to pay attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on the other hand, Denmark was a great success story. Mm-hmm. Denmark uh, had low numbers and kept, you know, had a complete shutdown of everything. It kept everything shut for, for eight weeks. There was a complete curfew in the whole country. It is reopened, and it's kept its caseload to five or ten per day, and those are immediately traced and, and taken care of. Um, the reason they've been successful is because they opened up very carefully, very slowly, they included opening up their schools, but in the schools they you really created social distancing and limited number of kids, and they did all those things, and the Danish people seem to listen to instructions better than either the Israeli or the American people seem to do. Yeah. So, um, again, we need to, you know, we need to take all this into account. I, I for one, am strongly against opening schools um, anywhere, as I think we, we over estimate how important schools are to kids. If they lose the whole year of school, the world isn't going to come to an end. If they're super spreaders and they keep this disease spreading, both the health impact and, of course, the economic impact of spreading this disease is, is disastrous and eventually be disastrous for them as well. So. Yeah, I don't know how it might be in Israel, but I'll say this, Mark. I mean, right now we have uh, over-reporting on uh, positive tests for coronavirus. I mean, it's, this is not in dispute. It definitely is happening here. Uh, with one guy, just an anecdotal story, one guy died in a motorcycle accident, a young guy, and his death certificate said COVID-19. So over-reporting deaths, and that's just one example. But uh, are we trusting the information we're getting out of the CDC and other information around I the world? I think so. I think I, I think you listen to too many sources who, who don't trust us. The, 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 they have no reason to lie. I mean, really, I mean, it's a conspiracy theory, but you really should put aside. The CDC is, is, is certainly a, and so is John Hopkins. These are reputable organizations. They have no reason to lie. They're not going to get more funding because there's 5,000 as opposed to 5,500 cases or whatever the numbers may be. You know, if it was from zero to 10,000, you can make an argument, but but, but it's not the case. And you look, at, you look at the numbers of hospitalizations, and they keep on growing. 
And that's what they're looking at here in Israel is not so much the numbers of, of cases they're finding, it's the number of hospitalizations that keep on growing. Yeah. And where, where the concern here is um, the fact that the hospitalizations will might overwhelm the hospital system. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that should be the focus. That should be the concern, not the number of cases, but, you know, flattening the curve was, was the objective in the beginning, and it should remain that way. Uh, we just need good information, that's all. Mark, you know, always... Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. No, but we also need to understand that, you know, public health is a public, is a public issue. It's an issue of the public square, and everyone has to participate, even if they don't get the direct, result, direct benefit, because... It's not a personal issue. It's a public issue. Yeah. There's no, there's no way around that. That's, again, where libertarianism meets uh, the real world here. That's certainly, you know, there's certainly, that, the, being a libertarian and, and celebrating freedom, has, along with it, you have to pick up responsibility as well and be a good citizen. So, Mark, hey, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. You as well. Thank you so much, Mark. Again, and from Tel Aviv, uh, just really appreciate his. He and I think so so differently. Uh, the, the prism through which we see the world is so interesting and so different. But uh, nevertheless, really smart guy and always up to date information. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For the best in food and drink as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willie's, the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Linda and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And then you can visit the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Jim is former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and up to date on what's happening in Washington, D.C. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. And a great organization, the Foundation for Economic Education. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yes, we work with young people of high school and college age. We educate and inspire them on ideas of individual liberty, free markets, private property, and personal character. We do that through a website that's quite uh, robust and open, of course, to anybody. Uh, that is at feefee.org. And we do seminars on campuses and uh uh, in schools and online all over the country. Yeah, uh, terrific. If you have a young person in your life, 
of those ages, I just encourage you to introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education. Take a look at the website because they do great things for young people in, in, in terms of uh, just helping them understand the importance of good character. Speaking of which, Larry, uh, you wrote a column, The British Parliamentarian Who Jumped Ship from Socialism. Great story. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yes, uh, the parliamentarian's name was Ivor, I-V-O-R, Thomas. Ivor Thomas was a member of the British Labour Party in the 1940s. In fact, for six years, from 1942 to 1947, uh, he was a member of the uh, House of Commons, member of Parliament, uh, representing the uh, Labour Party. At that time, uh, Labour was quite socialist, and of course still is. Mm -hmm. uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Clement Attlee of the Labour Party, succeeding Winston Churchill in 1945, uh, appointed uh, Ivor Thomas uh, to several important positions in government. But uh, from the inside, Ivor Thomas became very disillusioned with the Labour Party's uh, attempt to implement socialism in Britain. And uh, the uh, final straw that broke the camel's back, in, the, in his case, was when the labor government tried to seize the, uh, the steel industry. And Thomas uh, had enough with uh, uh, seizure of industries and government planning and felt that it was a disaster and likely to lead to even worse, uh, worse uh, catastrophes. And so he resigned and jumped ship and joined the Conservative Party. Just a great story. I mean, I don't, I don't know about your path in life, but uh, I was not raised as a conservative or a libertarian. I learned these things over time, and it, uh, you just wonder about, I think the hope, it extends hope that perhaps some of these young people that are getting into Congress are going to wake up and see the light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Thomas cer certainly would be a good uh, model for that because, you know, he, he went into government as a Labor Party member with the idea that, oh, we're going to, uh, give things away. We're going to have uh, rational planning of the economy by smart people at the top, and you know all that stuff that uh, sometimes sounds appealing. But uh, he happened to be uh, astute and alert and interested in what really was true and and that worked, not just uh, bumper sticker ideology. And so when he saw firsthand that this stuff was destructive and leading to uh, an undue concentration of power in the hands of corrupt politicians, that's when he said, uh, wow, I, I've, I've been disillusioned, I'm, I've gone down the wrong path, and I've learned from it, and now I'm going to be a champion of freedom and free markets. And fortunately, he was a spokesperson that people listened to. He had some influence. He was articulate, and he didn't he write a book? Oh, yes, he did. In 1951, uh, he may have written others as well, uh, because he had strong interest in uh, church affairs, too. Uh, but he wrote one political book in 1951 called The Tragedy of Socialism. And, wow, I recently read it and came away thinking, this is a, uh, a kind of a lost classic. It needs to be dusted off, because it, it was so eloquent. Uh, in an article about Thomas uh, recently on our website, fee.org, I included some excerpts, of, uh, as well as a short TV broadcast of him explaining his uh, change in parties. And the man was extraordinarily articulate and persuasive. Yeah. Well, do you mind, do you, uh, if you have them in front of you, could you read one or two? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, he says in one case, uh, the blunt teaching of history is that socialism is not an advanced stage in the evolution of human society, but one of its most primitive stages. A highly articulated form of socialism was practiced among the Incas, the tribes which Pizarro found in control of Peru when he landed there in 1527. And he goes on to explain how uh, that centralized economy was a complete disaster and left the Peruvian Incas open to invasion and conquering rather easily uh, mm -hmm. by Pizarro. And it kept them in, a, in both... Uh, uh, chains and in uh, poverty uh, throughout the time that they practice this rigid socialism. He also s said uh, human beings are tiresome creatures from the planner's point of view, uh, always wanting something different, and to make it worse, the wicked capitalist supplies what they want. 
<laughs> the planter, he says, would rather have it the other way around. Instead of supplying what people want, he would make them want what they're supplied with, which is a pretty good summation of what socialism is all about with its concentration of power. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's a great, inspiring story. I hope our listeners go to the website, fee.org, fee.org is the website, and take a look at this. Share it with other people, young people especially, because it's such an inspiring story. I know that uh, I didn't wake up, quote-unquote, until uh, the Reagan years uh, when, <laughs> remember, uh, was it uh, Carter's speech when he talked about the general malaise of the American yeah. public? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> blamed it on the public. I, you know, at, at that point, I'd had enough. But, yep. <laughs> but it takes it takes a while sometimes, especially if you grow up in a family that is uh, not conservative. Uh, you know, these these ideas stay with you. And who doesn't want to have a heart? Who doesn't want to help people? You know, that that kind of thing. But when you realize and understand the importance of libertarian, of freedom, and so forth, uh, you know, it's 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 just amazing to think what impact that could have if young people could understand that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some see it sooner than others, but quite often the shift in, in uh, opinion is in this direction with a little time and experience. And when you start to have kids or, or pay taxes, uh, some of this fanciful stuff that the socialists promise uh, uh, don't look so good. That's right. What's the old saying? If you're, if in, if you're young and, and uh, liberal, if you're not young and liberal and have a heart, uh, you don't have a heart. If uh, you're older, half older than 40, let's say, and uh, uh, and uh, are not a conservative, you don't have a brain. Something that I'd affect, but <laughs> it certainly rings true. Uh, Larry, I always appreciate uh, your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank uh, you, Bob. All right, again, fee.org is the website. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Jim is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He had his uh, press pass for the White House. He uh, was a great reporter. He retired a couple of years ago. He's written a couple of novels now. They are really fun to read. They're great murder mysteries. His latest is Shake the Money Tree. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show uh, on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. They proudly serve on their board many really great initiatives, and I hope you'll find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books, his latest, Shake the Money Tree, a great murder mystery. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Bob. I'm, I'm sitting here um, looking at history and uh, looking at the headlines about vaccines and then looking at Trump and his the, the note he constantly sounds, the optimistic note about uh, COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, and the press, which is uh, it's a, a liberal press for the most part, except for the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, accuses him of, um, you know, trying to paint the roses red. And uh, I think he's going to win on this. Today Today we have announcements coming out of England. Uh, you know, we have uh, a paper on the Oxford vaccine trial, which should be positive. And uh, there's another uh, company in uh, England, uh, I think it's called Synergis, that just had a study on an uh, inhaler. Mm-hmm. Uh, with interferon that reduces by 79% the need for people to be hospitalized uh, with COVID. So so um, uh, we have a tradition in this country of politicians uh, putting on a positive face. Uh, uh, the most famous, I guess, is uh, Treasury Secretary Morgenthau during the Great Depression you know, in 1929, saying, I don't think this is a big deal. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll be out of it soon. And uh, he he actually engineered the prosperity in the 20s by cutting uh, income taxes from a uh, marginal rate of 50% to 20%. And uh, he was very popular until two years into the Depression. Yeah. And then he became unpopular because the Depression persisted. But my point is, that uh, President Trump, uh, his sounding of uh, of optimism, his his position, you know, I'll be the optimist. There's a tradition of that in America. Number one, and number two, you know, he's playing the the long game, and I think he's going to win because of the uh, breakthroughs in the vaccines. Yeah. So, well, so I don't. So, so my point is, I don't think COVID's going to be uh, the make it or break it political issue of the campaign in, in November. Yeah, I, I, you know, I hate to admit that I, about conspiracy theories. I, I, again, I, earlier in the show, I quoted H.L. Mencken, the great journalist and uh, a writer, intellectual, I think, but he said, I'm suspicious of all things that the average people believe. <laughs> my, my point is this, that uh, right now this p- pandemic has been just, they've been fanning the flames of fear to the point where people, I think, are just uh, becoming uh, lemmings. They're just just running off a cliff with regard to their fear on this whole thing. I'm not saying that it's not contagious. I'm not saying that uh, people shouldn't be uh, careful. But what I am saying is that, uh, did you hear about in Kentucky, they actually put an ankle bracelet on a woman <laughs> because she had COVID-19 and wouldn't sign a quarantine notice or whatever. It's just, mm-hmm. the, the, it's just the overreaction is just unbelievable. Yeah, now... Uh, I personally am in favor of uh, wearing masks when you can't social distance, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm in favor of it wearing it inside. It's no big deal. Some of the masks are so light you hardly even realize that you have one. Right. And it's some, somewhat effective, uh, and it assuages the uh, psychology of your fellow human beings. So, so another point that if the president, he began wearing a mask, if he starts wearing a mask more regularly, he diffuses that that part of the equation as well. So then what we have, you know, I don't think the young people are going to turn out and vote en masse. I just don't, you know, when I look at them on the beaches and they're not social distancing, it's kind of a laissez-faire whether you're left or right. Mm-hmm. So I don't see that demographic getting exercised in this election. So it becomes an election between uh, uh, middle age and senior citizens. And when, and when you look at the enthusiasm numbers, uh, Trump has something among his supporters, 90% enthusiasm. Yeah. Those people are going to go to the polls. Uh, Biden's people, the invisible candidate, 79%. And he hasn't even opened his mouth yet. That number will fall. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I'm beginning to think that uh, this is Trump's election. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I believe that as well. Of course, I'm seeing through a prism. I'm, I'm a Trump supporter, and I, I admit that uh, enthusiastically, quite frankly. But again, a lot of the numbers have been fudged. I don't know what's behind all this, but you may be aware that in Florida, uh, that uh, some agencies, uh, hospitals, were reporting a hundred percent of the tests were positive. And when they when they did an investigation, it turned out that four percent were another uh, in the VA hospital. Six percent were when they were reporting seventy three percent were positive tests. So we're getting funny numbers. Why is this happening? I have. Is there some sort of financial incentive or perhaps political incentive? I don't know. But we also know that deaths are being overreported. And I told earlier in the show, mentioned a friend of mine, uh, his, a friend of his son, son uh, died in a motorcycle accident. He's 27 years of age. The, on the death certificate, COVID-19. <laughs> well, it, it, I think what happens is... Uh People get lazy, uh, you know, if they're overwhelmed. I mean, there are a lot more deaths, uh, you know, and there are a lot more people in the hospital. So, so. I mean, is so that, is that, ac- is that really true? I mean, do we know there are a lot more deaths? Because, uh, the percentage of people diving, dying from COVID-19 compared to the percentage of people dying is dropping like a rock. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say that people in the hospitals are overwhelmed because their patient loads are up. Yeah. And the testing, the testing is awful. My uh, friend uh, Alan Murray of Fortune Magazine, he, mm. he, he heads Fortune Magazine, he came in contact with a teenager who had COVID. Mm-hmm. And so he immediately got tested, or not immediately, but a few days later got tested. Mm-hmm. It took him 10 days to get the results. Mm-hmm. Now, he never developed any symptoms, but the point being, what good is a test? If it takes ten days to get the results, it's right. no good at all. Right. So, so, so the, uh, I mean, the tests, the tests could be valid, but the testers are just so slow and inefficient. Uh, it negates the uh, value of the test. So, so you know. Uh, well, let me let me give you an, let me give you another example, Jim. Uh, people standing in line for a couple hours in order to get tested, they finally give up and go home. They get the test results. They tested positive. They never took the test. <laughs> that's it, it's just a failure of uh uh government yeah. and well it's a failure of industry too and yeah. and uh you know industry is collect who knows what the actual dynamic is uh money is the bottom line yeah. so maybe they're they're doing more tests than they can handle to uh you know pump up uh, revenues it's uh that's a good but, point. Uh, I, who, who knows? But the point is that uh, I'm not I'm not trusting information from the government, and uh, for that. And again, I don't want to minimize the importance of staying safe. On one hand, on the other hand, we've decided here in Cuyahoga County the kids can they're going to uh, all schools have to be opening, all brick and mortar has to be open for all kids five days a week for a full schedule. That's the mandate from the Department of Education. So we come out with this plan that kids have to wear wraparound goggles and face. Mask. Can you imagine a second-year-old, uh, t- uh, second grader having to do that? It makes no sense whatsoever. Well, it's Florida. You could wear uh, scuba masks and snorkels, I guess. <laughs> but it's uh... <laughs> it's not. It's not to say that it's, it's the environment is quite different, Jim. You know what? I just <laughs> genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show, Jim. And uh, by the way, uh, so how is how's Washington D.C. with regard to COVID? People staying in, wearing masks. Uh, they really are. You know, I, um, here's my experience in Washington. Uh, last week, uh, my, uh, my wife Rachel and I went to the uh, Army and Navy Club, which is two blocks from the White House, to, to have lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Army and Navy Club dining room has a 30-foot high ceiling, and it's about, and it's about uh, 40 yards long. Uh, there were eight people in the dining room at three tables. Yeah. So hardly anybody showed up. Uh, yet when we have takeout meals every Friday... It's jammed. So our uh, military veteran officers, who are the club members, are being extremely cautious about their health. When we have club meetings, there's Zoom meetings because the membership does not want to return yeah. indoors at this point. So, so 
Yeah. Uh, I, I rode through Washington yesterday. It's a tourist desert. There might be, uh, you know, there are tourists, but there's a handful compared to previous years. Yeah, no question. Well, people, you know, can make their own decisions, and I think that's just a good illustration of how people are coping with the situation. Jim, genuinely appreciate again, the name of the book is Shake the Money Tree, There's a, a sequel to uh, Follow the Money. A great reads. Genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Erica Donald. So she is the founder of the uh, Optima Education Foundation. Uh, with uh, We're going to get her thoughts on what's happening with public schools here at Cuyahoga County. We'll visit with Boo Mortensen. We'll find out what's new with Boo. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. And a study completed by Sean Flanagan, uh, very interesting about what's happening with the economy and freedom here in the United States. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.